Hi, I'm Roger Blackmore. I'm the lead pastor at Genesis Church on Long Island in New York. Thanks for downloading our podcast. I hope it's a blessing to you. If you want to learn a bit more about our church, then check out our website, genesisli.com. And of course, if you live within traveling distance of us, we'd love to see you in person on Sunday morning, worshiping with us. So here's today's message. Enjoy. Now, I am not a hoarder. I don't know if some of you are, but I'm not a hoarder. I, you know, we don't have a ton of stuff around the place, at least if I can get it out without my wife noticing. I, I, not that she hoards, but I, I mean, I just like to keep, so I haven't got a lot of stuff. And we've lived in, we basically lived in three different countries in our life, England, Scotland, and the United States. And uh, we moved a lot of times. So you know what? You thin things out. But there are a few things that I kept because they are of particular value to me. And I, I pulled out two of them yesterday. This is a raggedy old book. This raggedy old book is called Grimm's Fairy Tales. Right? My father used to read to us from this sometimes when we were children. It's kind of falling apart. But on the inside of the cover, there's a little sticker. And it says, prize awarded to James Blackmore. That was my father. For progress in reading. Presented by someone whose name, I, signature I can't read. Then it says after it, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel. 2nd Battalion, Devonshire Regiment. Kingsway Camp. February the 26th, 1926. So my father was eight years old at the time. He was in a military school. Kingsway Camp was in Delhi in India because my grandfather was a career soldier and he was there serving in India with his family. And so this was my father's prize for progress in reading when he was eight years old. So you know what? I haven't read any of the contents of the book for a long, long time. But the book itself means an incredible amount to me. Heck, it's 93 years old. I finally found something that is older than I am. <laughs> the, the, other, the, the other thing that I keep in my office at home that's of value to me is this little red Bible. This was my mother's Bible. If you look inside my mother's Bible, it says December 1978. My recollection is this, that she wanted for Christmas that year, she wanted a Bible and that we'd got this for her. And she wanted a Bible that was small enough that she could fit it into her purse to take it to church with her. So my mother's little red Bible, and Lord knows how she even read this. It is so small. My mother's little red Bible is pretty well worn because when it wasn't in her purse on its way to church with her, it sat on the little table right by her chair in our living room. I don't know if you had designated chairs with your family, but nobody sat in that chair. Dad sat wherever there was room but that was mom's chair. Nobody sat in mom's chair. Her stuff was there, and her Bible was there. My mother didn't come to real full faith in Christ till she was 
in her 50s. But I'm going to tell you this, from the time she really had a relationship with Jesus, it absolutely changed her life and was the most precious thing there was to her. And this book became of incredible value to my mother. She read it and read it and read it. There are little notes that she made as she was reading it, but this was her Bible. The day 10 years later when she had a fatal stroke, she was sitting in her chair and her Bible was beside her. My mother's Bible. So it's special to me for those reasons, because it was hers, because it, it reminds me of the reality of her faith to her. And it reminds me of how precious the Bible was to her. And what I want to do over the next few Sundays is I want us to look at why the Bible indeed is so significant and so important. And today I want to look at the, 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 the thing about why the Bible is a big deal. What is the big deal? I call this series The Bottom Line. And, and I call it The Bottom Line for this reason, that for many of us who put our faith in Christ, what we say is this, ultimately, this is the bottom line that guides us. You see, we live in a world with no direction. I, 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 was, I saw something the other day that alarmed me, and then it mildly amused me, and I'll explain why. Apparently, there's a popular line of T-shirts that says there are more than two genders. What amused me about it was you had to say whether you wanted the male style or the female style. But you know, the thing is this, if people say stuff long enough, often enough, put it in people's faces, folks at least start to think, well, I guess if it works for them, there's something going on there. Because there's no bottom line in society. There's no ultimate. They've lost sight of the fact. It's very, I mean, it's very simple. If you, need, if you need chapter and verse in the Bible for it, it's in there. I thought common sense told us there's two genders. But anyway. The, the, reality is, the reality is this. The Bible says when God made mankind, he made them male and female. There's got to be a bottom line. Politicians are discussing still at what point uh, life starts for a baby. And they're stretching it and stretching it and stretching it and stretching it to see how long they can go legally and kill an unborn child or a born child. Whereas what the Bible says is this. God says, when you were in your mother's womb, I knew you and I had plans for you. God speaks about the baby in the womb having life and having purpose. But there's no bottom line in our society anymore. Those things would never have come up years ago because it was very clear. You can't do that because the Bible says, the Bible says, our nation was built on the foundation of God's Word. And that was the, that was the thing that helped to shape our laws and our constitution. The Bible says, the Bible says. And there is, though nowadays, there is kind of just a, a, a free-for-all where the general thing is this. Well, you know, if you're happy and that works for you. And the trouble with that is society is crumbling, though they don't realize it. Families are falling apart, and individuals are going to pieces. 
But there's a better way. And the better way is to order our lives, our families, our nation according to the bottom line of God's Word. So I want to chat about the Bible for a, a while this morning. I want to chat about why the Bible is particularly significant and important to us. Um, the, the Bible is, without question, the most read book in history. It's the best-selling book ever, still is. It's the most translated book in history. But what makes it so special? Why, why do we say this is the Word of God? Why do we say that this is something that is unique? How do we know it's the Word of God? I, I want you to look at this verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy 3.16, every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. That's what the Bible will do for us. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed. Now, what you are listening to right now is my breath. Right? Now, don't ask me. I know there's some of you that are professionals in this, and you could explain it in depth, and you'll probably be horrified at what I'm just going to say now. But basically, my breath comes over my vocal cords, and words come out of my mouth, right? So, what is here... shapes my breath. My breath comes over my vocal cords. You're hearing my breath, and my breath is shaped by what I'm thinking and what I'm wanting to convey. The Bible says, Timothy says here, or Paul, let's get that right. Paul says to Timothy in the Bible, every part of Scripture is God-breathed. So, this isn't just a book that was written by inspired or informed people. Isn't it just a special book written by people with special insight? The Bible is God-breathed. So actually what God wants to speak to us and God wants to say to us comes through and is right here within these pages. It's not just a collection of stories, but actually it is inspired by God. God-breathed. It isn't just a good idea. It isn't just good stuff. It's God conveying His heart to us through His inspired Word. But how do we know? How do we know this is the Word of God? How do we know this isn't just a bunch of stories handed down? Time Magazine, a couple of times, has um, given its front page, its cover, to questions about that. They they ran a, a whole magazine once with a theme of how true is the Bible. And then they did another one, the Bible, fact or fiction. And what I want to do today, and it's a different style to the way I'd normally be teaching on a Sunday, is I, I want us to take a look at why we can trust the Bible, what makes it different, and what proves that it is not just fiction, but much more than that. Because the fact is there are incredible proofs and evidences that help us to see the fact that the Bible really is God's Word, God speaking to you and me. The Bible is a big deal. So there are 
Now, those of you who are here regularly will probably gasp at this point. There are six things I want to share with you today. If this is your first time here, I normally, I normally break down what I'm saying into three and hardly get to number three. So when I say six, everybody laughs because hope you brought sandwiches. Okay, so here we go. So there are six things that I want to, I want to state here, and, and these are good for us to know, and these are good for us to be able to share with others who might question us. The first is this. Here, the Bible is a big deal because the Bible is historically accurate. It isn't just doctrinally accurate. It isn't just accurate about morals and ethics. It's true history. It's about real people, and it's about real places. Why is that important? Because if I can't believe and trust every detail in this book, then I have to start questioning, well, is this bit okay? Or is that bit okay? It either all stands together or it all falls together. So I either trust the whole thing or I trust none of it. And that's the thing. If I can't, it's got to be accurate. So the Bible is historically accurate. One of the things when people write a history um, of events or of a certain period, uh, when they write a history, the main thing that gives it authenticity is whether they were actually involved and were eyewitnesses, or how many people they actually talked to and interviewed who were involved at that time. I mean, I could write a history of World War II, um, but I wasn't there. I could write a history of World War II by reading every book there is in the library on World War II, but actually it doesn't make me an authority on, on that at all. It just means that I'm good at stealing stuff from other writers. But if you wanted someone to write a history of the British Air Force in India in World War II, my father served in India with the British Air Force in World War II, so he could write some of that stuff because he was there. Are you with me? So we can trust the Bible because the Bible was actually written by people who were there. When you read about, we talked about this last week, I think, Moses crossing the Red Sea, or we talked about it recently, I think. So when Moses led the children of Israel through the Red Sea, Moses wrote that record that we have here in our Bibles. He saw it happen. When Joshua took the children of Israel into their promised land and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, you know what? It's Joshua who wrote about it in this book, historically accurate. And by the way, there, there are people who poo-pooed that idea for years about the Israelites walked around the walls of Jericho, and uh, they did it once a day for six days. On the seventh day, they went around it seven times, and when they went around it seven times, the walls of the city collapsed, and people said, well, that's a nice story. But actually, what archaeologists have found relatively recently is the ruins of the old Jericho and evidence that the walls seem to have just sunk into the ground. The Bible is historically accurate. If you look over into the New Testament, the Apostle John was there. He saw the things Jesus did, so he wrote it down. Matthew was there. He saw the things. He, he, he wrote the stuff down. 
Peter was there. Some people think that he perhaps wasn't too literate, so, he, so Peter didn't write it down. He just told everything to Mark and said, hey, Mark, write this. We'll call it Mark's Gospel. You can get the credit. So these are all eyewitness accounts that mean that the Bible is historically correct. The, the other thing that I want to mention is this, because I don't know if you've ever heard people say, well, it's been translated so many times, and it's been copied so many times, and how can it be accurate this far along? And people who ask that question show their ignorance. Because in the copying of the Scriptures centuries ago, meticulous care had to be taken. Did, did you ever, did you ever like, you, you, you send it, sorry, I, I text like this, I know. That's how old people text. Young people text like this, right? There's smoke coming out the keyboard, but us old people, us old people, we do a letter at a time and think we're doing good. And, and, and I love kind of, I love autofill. So I'm halfway through a word, it fills it out, except on an odd occasion where I look at it before I hit send and realize it filled in a bad word, which wasn't meant to be there. So if you ever get a text from me and there's a bad word in it, it was autofill, honestly, okay? So sometimes I have to send a follow-up with, with the right word or the right two words afterwards because it conveys something different. Um, it's not all bad words, but I mean, it says something different than what I wanted to say. But when it came to copying, translate, the, the tr copying the Bible from generation to generation, there were very strict rules. One is they had to copy it one letter at a time. So you went to the old manuscript, right? Didn't have books way back. And you saw that, that letter, and you copied that letter, and then you compared. And then you went back to the next letter. And it wasn't a case, okay, it's that word, let's write that word. They weren't allowed to do that. Letter to letter, to letter, to letter. And then, when one of the books would have been complete, they would go to, they would take a look at it, and they would count, for instance, how many A's there are in that book. Because they knew how many A's were in the original. So if there was 4,697 A's in the original, and you've got the copy over here, and you go and count it, and there's one more over here. You know what they did? They scrapped this whole copy, and they started copying it again. It had to be 100% accurate. They knew exactly what was there. They knew what the middle letter in the Bible was. My Lord. I only know what the middle book is, and that's because if you open it in the middle, it comes to Psalms. Like, that's good. They knew what the middle letter was in the Bible. They were so exact in everything that they did. And then there's one other thing I want to say about the Bible being historically correct, and that is this. Back in the late 1940s, there was a discovery that was made near the Dead Sea in, in Israel, the Ein Feshka Caves, and they found some scrolls, which actually were the whole of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. And you might have heard of them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were dated. They thought that they, they were about a thousand years before Jesus. 
And actually, in 1946, the oldest manuscripts and copies of the Scriptures they had were dated around 900 years after the birth of Jesus. So now they find Scriptures from a thousand years ago, and they start comparing the two of them, and guess what? There were some mistakes. They were generally in the spelling of a name or the spelling of a word, but actually, a thousand years had passed, and the Scriptures had been copied multiple, multiple, multiple times, but the Bible was the same as it was a thousand years before. So, the Bible is historically correct. The second thing I want to say is the Bible is prophetically correct. There are thousands of prophecies in the Bible, things that God says are going to happen at such and such a time and in such and such a way. Thousands of those have already been fulfilled, and some of them we're waiting to see fulfilled. In the Old Testament books, there are over 300 prophecies about the coming of Jesus and, and about the, the, the birth of Christ, life of Christ, death of Christ. And those prophecies span a thousand-year period before He was even born. But they say when He'll be born, where He'll be born, how He'll be born. They say how the Savior will actually die. Over a thousand years before, it actually happened. There are so many predictions about the life of Christ, and they all came, they all came to pass with the detail with which they were first given. A thousand years before Jesus came and died on the cross, David wrote one of his psalms, and it was a prophetic psalm, and it described the death of Christ. Did not use the word crucifixion because that was not in use at that time, but it described the way of dying. How did he know that? Because every word of this book is God-breathed and can be trusted. 2 Peter 1 verse 21 says this, prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets spoke, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How'd they get it right? The Holy Spirit was guiding them. The Holy Spirit was using them. The Holy Spirit was speaking through them. And so what they said, because it was actually God's words, came to pass. You remember when Jesus was being arrested the, 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 the night before his crucifixion. And do you remember that Peter, one of his followers, got really upset that the soldiers were taking him, and he grabbed somebody's sword, and he cut off a guy's ear? Remember that bit? And, and here's what Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the Scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus says, stop it. 
stop it. You don't need to do it. We could, we could stop this straight away. But there were scriptures that were spoken years ago. It talked about what was going to happen, and that is what is happening. Don't try to stop it. If the Father wanted to stop it, He could. But what was happening to Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies from thousands of years before. Now, why is that relevant to you and me? Number one, it means we can trust the book. But number two, it means this. The promises that God has made to us, the things that God's Word has kind of really taken hold in our life about, God will do. What God's spoken to you, God will do. What God's promised to us, He'll bring about. Because everything that God promised came to pass, and those that have not yet will come to pass, because the Bible is prophetically accurate. Third thing, the Bible is thematically unified. That's a great phrase. The Bible is thematically unified. What I mean is this. See, the Bible is made up of 66 books, right? 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And yet the fact is there's the same theme that runs through the whole of the book. The theme is redemption, and the central person is Jesus. Now, you might think, well, didn't Jesus pop up in the New Testament? No, if you really take a dive into the Old Testament, you'll find so much of the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus coming. These 66 books were written by authors who lived on three different continents. They were written in three different languages. Many of the writers were separated by hundreds and hundreds of years as to when they lived. Most of them did not even know each other. So they wrote this. They wrote their books. Their, their books were recognized being God-breathed. They were compiled in the Bible. And guess what? There's a unity amongst all of these books, which is a miracle. I want you to think, think about this. If, if I was to give 50 of you, don't, the others don't get upset, but if I was to give 50 of you just a sheet of white paper, and I said, I want you to tear that paper into any shape you want. Imagine that. You then give me back your 50 shapes. And what then if up here I had a board, and those 50 shapes fit incredibly, and they made up the map of the United States of America? Now, that's impossible, right? It is. That's impossible. Absolutely impossible. Not going to happen. Imagine 66 books written by so many different writers in so many different languages, from so many different backgrounds, historically living at so many different times. And yet when they put them together, there's an incredible unity about the message of this whole book about God's grace, God's goodness, and God's redemption. All kinds of people wrote the Bible in all kinds of places. And yet there's a unity to the message of the whole thing that you just couldn't make happen. That's the Bible. Many places, many people, many centuries, yet all together. Luke 24, verse 27 says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus went back to the oldest of the scriptures, because there's a unity to the message of them all, and he showed them how they were talking about the Savior who was to come. You can actually see him in every book real clear when you look and when you know. John 5, verse 39, 
Jesus said, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. Jesus was saying that. They only had the Old Testament. And he says, these Scriptures testify of me. So the Bible is thematically unified. Fourth thing I want to say is we trust the Bible, and the big deal about the Bible is, is this. It is confirmed by Jesus. Jesus believed it. So that's kind of enough for me. Say, so what do you mean Jesus believed the Bible? Well, Jesus talked about the stories that were in the Bible, the people that were in the Bible. He trusted the Bible. So if I trust Jesus, then I'm going to trust the Bible too. Jesus said, you know, the Bible is a unique book above every other one. Matthew 5, verse 18. Truly I tell you, till heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's how special he saw it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, this still stands till heaven and earth disappear. Every single bit of this stands. And where you're going to really fall flat on your face is when you decide, I don't like that bit, I'll flip over that. Although, you know what? It was a different time. It was a different culture. We live in America in 2019. It's all different. True that. It's all different. But it needs to be different in a, another kind of way. And you know what? This is God's breath giving life and direction to us in 2019, and as relevant as ever. The simple statement in John 10, 35, Jesus said, Scripture doesn't lie. Got it? Scripture doesn't lie. When Jesus says that every sentence, every word in the Bible is true, I believe that every sentence, every word in the Bible is true. He wasn't just affirming its accuracy there, but Jesus talked about its efficiency. Luke 11 and verse 28, he replied, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and obey it. So Jesus knew that the Word of God was effective. He talked about Noah. He talked about Jonah. He talked about Daniel. He talked about some of the stories in the Bible that are the best known and some of the most maligned by people who would say, well, you know, those are nice stories, and those are good stories, and yeah, they're a collection of fables from olden times, but Jesus referred to them as facts in history from which, which have been recorded so that we can learn lessons that are positive and good for us from them. Jesus believed in the Bible. Number five, there's something special about the Bible because the Bible has survived all attacks. There's no more maligned book in the history of the world. There really isn't. People have been killed for owning Bibles and still are. The Bible has been banned in whole nations and still is. Millions of people through history have died because they refused to give up their Bible. 
Yet it's still the most read book in the world, the most published book in the world, the most translated book in the world, the best-selling book in the world, and the Bible is still making a difference in people's lives. The fact the Bible has survived kind of says there's a supernatural element to it. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. A number of years ago, the, the French philosopher Voltaire said this. He was a very anti-God, anti-Bible person. He wrote a lot of essays deriding the Bible. He said, a hundred years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. For a hundred years after Voltaire died, his home was used as a Bible distribution depot by the French Bible Society. <laughs> you got to love that, right? I hope he could see that. <laughs> you got to love that. It's like the Bible will be forgotten. Uh, no, Voltaire, yeah, I know the name. What's the, you know, he's forgotten. But the Bible isn't forgotten for sure. The Bible endures Survives all attacks. 1 Peter 1 verse 24. All people are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers. The flowers fail. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. God's word lasts. I saw a bumper sticker once that said, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And you know, that's good, but it's actually not totally accurate because whether you believe it or not, it if God said it, that settles it. If God said it, that's the way it is. I mean, I, if I believe it, that's really good as well. But it's like, you know, I could say I believe, you know, I don't believe in gravity, you know. Hey, they say that, you know, gravity is, you know, if I step off a roof, I'll fall down. But I don't believe that. Well, you don't have to believe it, but check it out. You know what? <laughs> gravity works. God said it. I do believe it, but if God said it, that confirms it, and God's Word has lasted for generations. Then the last thing I want to share is this. Why is the Bible a big deal? Because the Bible has transforming power. Now, I'm in a better position than you are right now to see that. You know why? Because I can see everybody in here. And I know a lot of your stories. The Bible has transforming power. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it special. What self-help books couldn't do. What counselors tried their best to make happen. Nothing can change the life of a person like the Bible changes the life of a person. Your lives have been changed by it. My life has been changed by it. Heck, yours and my lives are being changed by it. And it's what the Bible has done in people's lives that is the real testament to what it is. If I thought you could change human behavior by laws, I'd become a politician. But I have zero faith in politicians to change the greatest problems on our planet because you can make all the laws in the world, but you can't change the human heart. You can make a law that outlaws racism, bigotry, or whatever else, but no law can change a bigot into a lover. God's got to do that. God's got to change the heart. 
And that's why I've invested my life in the heart-changing business of sharing God's Word and encouraging people to take God's Word fully on board and to live by the book and be people of the book. It changes people like we would never imagine. John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed Him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, there are learning institutions all around our country that in different places will have the latter part of that verse, the truth will set you free. But that's not the point of it all. The point of it all is if you hold to Jesus' teaching, follow Him, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Where are you going to get, where are you going to get the truth from? You're going to get it from Jesus. You're going to get it from Jesus' teaching. If you hold to my teaching, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the thing is this. The question for us today is, what is the authority in my life? And, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction, because we're in church, is the Bible. But you know what? The way we live show much, shows how much of the Bible we actually believe. The truth sets us free. But the only way the truth can set us free is if we know it. My encouragement to you this morning is this. If this book is not true, we're in a heap of trouble. But if it's true and life-changing, we should know it, live it, and share it. You will know the truth. Here's my encouragement to you as we close today. I'm going to give you some homework if you want it. Do what you want with it. I'm going to encourage you to read the Bible this week. Now, here's, good, here's my suggestion. I'm talking to myself here because I, I don't read the Bible. I just wanted to throw that out first before I... <laughs> before I <laughs> no, I don't read a book. I, read, I use the app. Most of the time, I use the app. With all of my studying and teaching preparation... I've got programs on the computer with multiple translations on the Bible. I do not often pick up the book, but I'm going to this week. In fact, I'm, I've got this book. And I'm going to encourage you this week to actually pick up a physical Bible, like a book with pages like we had in olden times. <laughs> and open it right in the middle of the book of Psalms. And start with Psalm 1. Just read Psalm 1. And then pause to look, just to look it over again for a moment or two and ask yourself, what's this saying to me? That's it. See, the truth will set us free, but we've got to know the truth first. So here's, here's the challenge. Over the next seven days, whether you start today and finish Saturday or start tomorrow and finish next Sunday. The challenge is this. Read Psalm 1 and then, uh, you, this might be difficult to remember, write it down. Psalm 2. <laughs> okay? Gets more complicated. Then the third day we go to Psalm 3. I want to encourage you for the next week, read. 
God's Word. Seven passages. Now, you might read it someday and think, I have no idea what that was all about. That's okay, because there's life in these pages. There's a supernatural element. There are things you'll read that might not make you leap for joy that particular morning, but it's going to be in here then, and one of these days it's going to come back to your, mem your memory. And you say, well, thank God. The bottom line for us has to be the Word of God. And for us as a church, part of our message and our mission is this. Jesus came to bring us back into line with the Father's manual. This is the manufacturer's handbook. And we need to be a light in a dark world that's just gotten crazy and is getting crazier. And it seems old-fashioned, and they call us bigoted. But you know something? When you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Yeah. Amen. Let's, let's stand and pray together.